Well, tonight we're continuing, or I should say you are continuing, and I'm joining you for one week, your uh, series called Route 66, one message to introduce each of the 66 books of the Bible. And tonight it's my pleasure to overview the book of Proverbs. So this message is largely an informational one, but I will do my best to apply things, of course, as we go. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this book. Thank you so much that it is written for and to us. God, help us to be humble under your word tonight. Pray that you help me, grant me grace tonight. I pray that you help each one of us to have soft hearts, Holy Spirit. Please give us soft hearts to be attentive to your word and to glean whatever we may from it to be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. The most expensive jewel ever sold at auction is called the CTF Pink Star. The raw pink diamond was discovered in 1999 in South Africa. Over two years, it was polished and cut into 57 facets or, or sides giving the appearance of a star in the middle of its table. It is 59.6 carats in weight and internally flawless. In 2013, it was auctioned for a record $83 million to a New York diamond cutter who within months defaulted on the transaction. Then in 2017, it was finally sold, actually sold, for $71.2 million in Hong Kong. Town & Country Magazine writes, This beautiful pink jewel about the size of a strawberry is prized for its size, clarity, and intensity of color. Like a great work of art, experts say there will never be another one like it. Now, diamonds were not precious stones in Bible times. There were no um, technologies to cut such a hard stone in the ancient Near East. So the word diamond, for example, in the book of Exodus, is not what we would call a diamond today. However, like this pink diamond, there were precious stones, many of a reddish color that were highly valued in Israel. One of those appears in the book of Proverbs. And doubtless, it was among those precious stones that the queen of Sheba brought to King Solomon as a gift in 1 Kings 10 when she came to hear his wisdom. And it's often translated, this word, corals or pearls or rubies in older versions of uh, older translations of the Bible because there's no way to be sure what mineral it is exactly based on the texts from the ancient Near East that we have today. But it was, in Proverbs, emblematic of precious stones in general. It's always cited, always, in contrast to something that is more precious than. I'm sorry, something that's more precious than it. So if you're in Proverbs, let's begin by reading in verse 1. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you. Please, please go to chapter 2. It's the same page you have open, basically. Chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver 
and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Turn to chapter 3, verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who hold her fast. Wisdom, Proverbs says, is more valuable than all hidden riches in the earth. And giving wisdom is the purpose of this book. And for that reason, I would call this overview message, Proverbs, the Lord's deposit of precious wisdom. Proverbs is the Lord's deposit of precious wisdom. And like the most precious diamond we will look at this book from 57 different angles or facets tonight. So if you're taking notes, 57 points. Obviously, I'm kidding. Not 57. But we are going to look at the book from different angles, facets, that will help you see, find, get, extract wisdom from it. Okay? Appreciate the beauty, the wisdom, the the priceless worth of this book with eight facets to the gem that is Proverbs. Eight facets. And I hope we can get through all of them, but I won't punish you if we're running over time. We'll just do as much as we can, okay? Facet number one, it's purpose. Purpose of the book, facet number one. The message or summary of the book of Proverbs is very basic. It is found in the title and the preamble of the whole book. So if you flip back to chapter one, I'm going to ask you to flip around quite a lot tonight. That's the nature of this kind of message. Read that with me, chapter one, verse one. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and discipline, to understand the sayings of understanding, to receive discipline that leads to insight, righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. Let the wise man hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire guidance. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. And then verse 7 is a key follow-on. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. Now, firstly, focus on this phrase, the fear of Yahweh. This is not fear as in dread or worry, but fear as in reverence and obedience, a concept you are familiar with if you have sat under the teaching of Scripture. To fear Yahweh is to live corum Deo, as it says in Latin, before the face of God. And this is, as Mark Rooker says in his introduction to Proverbs, the proper theological and hermeneutical grid through which the contents should be read. The fear of Yahweh is the glasses by which you need to read this book. Okay. Notice also the five infinitive verbs in verses 2 through 6. I gave emphasis as we read. They are to know to understand, to receive, 
to give to understand. This book was an exercise in both learning and teaching. It concerns both practical morality and intellectual morality. It involves discipline, that is correction, and acquisition, that is study. Learning in these ways is especially vital in youth, this preamble says, but it never stops and it is always before Yahweh, the God of Israel. So if I were to summarize this purpose in one sentence, it would be to practically instruct the young and naive in the ways of wisdom. To practically instruct the young and naive in the ways of wisdom, that is, how fear of Yahweh informs all of life and conduct. That's facet number one. See, we're on a a great start here. This is going quick, right? Facet number two, the book's provenance. Provenance, that is, its author and its date, its origin, okay? Facet number two is the book's provenance. You can see above that the title of this book names Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, as the author. And he's mentioned in titles to some of the subsections of this book, which we'll discuss in a few minutes. See it again in 10.1 and in 25.1. Other authors are mentioned also. Augur, whom we surmise was a prophet, whose Proverbs are in chapter 30. And Lemuel, an otherwise unknown king, whose Proverbs are in chapter 31. Now, Jewish tradition has identified either of or, or both of these as pseudonyms or poetic uh, designations for Solomon, but both of the names are, in fact, foreign. Plus, we have the father of Augur mentioned. It's not David. It seems more likely, then, that both of them were foreigners. I would propose like Job. Job. Now, a third authorship is mentioned in Proverbs as well, which is anonymous, Proverbs 22.17 and 24.23. Those sections are attributed to the words of the wise, indicating that Solomon knew of these anonymous sayings and adapted them as was appropriate for biblical wisdom. Okay, now I'll explain more of this. Bear with me. In all, Solomon was effectively the author of chapters 1 through 29 and perhaps the collector of chapters 30 and 31 as well, if he was not the author. But it may have been another authorized prophet who added those chapters. Now, that's neither a problem that Solomon adapted others' um, proverbs, nor that he adopted others' proverbs and cited them. For Moses, David, and Ezekiel all cited extra-biblical proverbs or proverbial poems with approval. And this would be no different. I can give you the references. Numbers 21, 1 Samuel 24, Ezekiel 16 are examples. And plus, as I mentioned, Job was not an Israelite, but was from the land of Uz and called the greatest of all the sons of the East. Now Solomon reigned in Jerusalem from about 971 to 931. But 1 Kings 11 tells us that Solomon's heart turned away from Yahweh when he had grown old. So the authorship of this work must have been before that because how thoroughly it speaks of Yahweh. 
86 times in this book is God's name, his personal name. And we begin square one. very content, the whole purpose of this book. Listen, you begin with fearing God if you would walk the path of wisdom. And as much as you might gain from this book with practical insights into how to live and to be skillful and to have favor with men, that is all for nothing if you do not begin in the heart the fear of Yahweh, with a right relationship with God. So you need to bear that in mind. Now, Ecclesiastes, you know, um, if you've uh, been around for our study of Ecclesiastes a couple years ago, that was written at the end of Solomon's life. Uh, we surmise after the Lord rebuked him in 1 Kings 11, and there's this regretful warning tone to that book, but this book, this book is, is full of promise, Right? It's, it's, it's got its warnings, but this is a blessing of a book to encourage you in positive ways to walk this path. So the content of Proverbs was written in the 10th century BC during Solomon's reign, the early part of his reign. But it was not completed in its final form until the 7th century BC because in Proverbs 25 verse 1, Turn there, please. Proverbs 25, verse 1. We read about Hezekiah. It says, These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. Now, of course, they didn't go about this business without his commission. This is assumed, right? Hezekiah, if you know anything about his reign, he had an interest in scripture and in um, spiritual reform in Judah. So this is what we call in 25.1 an editorial comment. That is, Hezekiah served as an editor of this volume, and he basically doubled or tripled the size of the previous volume, the Proverbs. Not with original material, but with Solomon's material written elsewhere written in books which God in his providence simply did not preserve for his church. But God in his providence preserved for access for Hezekiah and for Israel in his day. And Hezekiah ordered his men to transcribe some of those writings. Again, that was under God's orchestration into this authoritative canonical book of Proverbs. Right? So, so Hezekiah knows of these other writings and he knows that they need to be transcribed from that book to this book. You following me? Which book was stored in the temple repository of sacred scripture? This is the kind of thing that I love. I'm interested in the Old Testament for this very kind of reason because I, I want to encourage all of us I want to build our confidence in this book that we have. That God left us information about the preservation of his word in his word and that you don't have to wonder whether later authors made stuff up and, and pretended to write in an earlier author's name. You know, or or that, that God used 
you know, lies, basically, right? Pseudo, pseudonyms, uh, pseudepigraphical works to commit spiritual truth to writing. God has not done that. God used obedient people in just the right positions to preserve, protect, transmit, sometimes rediscover, and of course, add to his word when necessary. Hezekiah was such a person, and his reign was such a reign. Now, Hezekiah reigned alone over the kingdom of Judah from 715 to 686 BC, and you can read about him in 2 Kings 18 to 20. It's possible that Hezekiah added chapters 30 to 31, but in either case, Solomon or Hezekiah, 10th century or 7th century, it was an authorized king inspired by the Holy Spirit acting in the role of a prophet like David. Okay? Such is the provenance of Proverbs. That's its author and its date. Facet number three, its genre. Proverbs is genre. Okay? Proverbs falls under the genre widely known as wisdom literature. Now that moniker is somewhat problematic because it's vague. Just know that the biblical books generally recognized as, as such include Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and a few Psalms. Now I think it's a legitimate um, category. Okay, I'm not trying to undermine anything else that um, you've been taught from Scripture about that. I just want you to be aware that that... Um, designation is out there and some people critique it but it's legitimate and in the ancient near east there were in fact other wisdom traditions by which scholars mean that there were recognized wise men sages right of course we read about them in the bible right in the new testament wise men uh, who came to worship at jesus's um, birth but there were wise men recognized sages members either of their nation's royal court or pagan priesthood who preserved a tradition of oral and sometimes textual sayings which their respective culture considered wise. Not necessarily objectively so. Texts have survived, in fact, from the third millennium B.C. That's 2,000 plus years. I mean, I mean, the 2,000s plus. I mean, from now, it's you know, 4,000 plus years ago. But for now, just remember, again, the first words that you read in 1 verse 1, besides this wisdom literature category, we have a given genre in the first verse that says the Proverbs of Solomon. Proverb. The Hebrew word is mashal. It comes from the, the verb meaning to be like or to be comparable. Comparable, if you prefer. For example, the verb is used in Isaiah 46, verse 5. To whom, God says, would you liken me and make me equal and compare, that's mashal, me, that we would be alike. In English, we think of Proverbs as short, pithy sayings, like an adage or an axiom, right? Something that's catchy and memorable. But more fundamentally, the Hebrew word here has this idea of comparison. And that could be in form a poem, could be a parable, a taunt, or a byword, and it's translated in all those ways in the Old Testament. In fact, this book also has extended poems which convey parables of people you ought not to be like. And I remember as I've taught through Proverbs before, we have this 
this type of a tragic comedy, I heard one commentator say, right? You have parables of people you don't want to be like in these extended poems. And Solomon considered all of this under the genre of proverb. Whatever the form, the genre of the text here gives insight by comparing real, observable, tangible things in life with spiritual truths. That's what a proverb is. So you see metaphors, similes, analogies, these numeric formulas. But the main device used most often is parallelism. Parallelism, uh, excuse me, parallelism is a very complex, powerful system. Okay? It's difficult to reduce it down to like a strict number of, well, you have this kind of parallel and that kind of parallel and that one and everything else basically falls under those three main categories. Very difficult to do that. Um, parallelism is very powerful and, and nuanced. But the basic idea, you could say, okay, the basic idea is if you have two lines, A and B, that B somehow particularizes or defines or expands the meaning of A. Now, sometimes there's three lines, sometimes there's four lines, but let me, let me give you some examples. If you're already in chapter 25, stay there. Just look at verses 2 through 4. Each, uh, we're going to look at, like I said, verses 2 through 4. Each of these have different lengths, different kinds of parallelism, but they all have this overarching topic of a righteous king. Verse 2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. This is a, a contrasting kind of parallel with two lines or colons, A and B. But the point is not that, that A is in direct conflict to be. It's not that God and righteous kings are in conflict. Rather, it's as Dwayne Garrett writes, God is glorious in concealing matters and in that a certain level of mystery about the divine increases the sense of wonder and awe. You know, I'm not God. If I could figure, if I could get my arms all the way around God, he wouldn't be. I would be God. You see, there's, there's this... There's this, this blessed despair, I had a seminary professor call it, of pursuing the knowledge of God, where I will never exhaust God. I can apprehend God. I can truly know him, but I can never get my arms all the way around him, comprehend him. You understand what I'm saying? There's, there's a glory in God and not revealing all mysteries. But, on the other hand, the glory of a king is to search out or to study first this mysterious God, his glory to study that out, search that out, and therefore, secondly, how to be king in light of that glory. So you see this, this contrasting parallelism. A and B inform the meaning of one another. Look at verse 3. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of the kings is, is unsearchable. This is another bicolon. It's got two lines, but, but in the first line, there's actually a parallel within a parallel. Line A is really A1 and A2. A1 is true, A2 is true, and what is more, B is true. This is the pattern we have here. Heaven and earth are two extremes forming what is called a merism. It means like A to Z in English. We say from A to Z, 
We mean everything in between, including the ends, the polar opposites. So that although the first line doesn't say heaven and earth are unsearchable, you know that's what it means. They're, they're too vast. There's way too much in them to exhaust, to get your head around everything again. So unsearchable ought to be the king's counsel. That is, his searching out of mysteries ought to produce vast wisdom. Wisdom that results sometimes in, you know, mysteries. Things that are not actually revealed to his subjects. Like wisdom that he plays close to the vest. Decisions that he has prerogatives to make as a king. Verse 4. Take away the dross from the silver, and, and there comes out a vessel for the smith. Take away the wicked before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Now here we have a quatrain. That's four lines. A leads to B. Parallelism between A's and B's in two different parallels, you see. It's a very powerful system. A righteous king is required to remove the dross of evildoers from his kingdom, not to tolerate them. That's, that's the point of these verses here. And it's, it's of course, interesting that this, these are the first verses that Hezekiah, king, writes, or transcribes, rather, I should say, from Solomon's Proverbs. Kings have an interest in wisdom for ruling rightly. Anyways, you can see that the comparison is the name of the game here with this genre. And so you have to read Proverbs very closely and to give them some time. You know, there's all these email bursts that send out daily Bible verses to your inbox. You know, those can be encouraging. But Proverbs really take time to look at. Proverbs is, is popular material for that kind of thing. Proverbs take time. You need to Follow them closely. That's facet number three. That's its genre, okay? Facet number four, it's context. It's context. Now, from this angle, we've already seen that the proverb or wisdom genre was widely used in the ancient Near East. But more precisely, what the book of Proverbs context in Israel is, is important to us. And it was fundamentally God's covenant with Israel, okay? That is the most important context here for reading this book. It's God's covenant with Israel. Yahweh, the covenant name of God, I've already mentioned, is 86 times in this book. It's on every page of this book. You cannot flip through Proverbs and not see Yahweh. You're aware that God chose Israel to be his servant nation. And then he gave them his law to govern their daily lives. Now, to get this, I want to show you some passages outside of Proverbs, so I would ask you to turn to first King, oh, sorry, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4 first. Chapter 4, verse 5. Now, this is actually Moses teaching the Israelites who are on the verge of entering the promised land. And he's teaching them the significance of their covenant with God. And he recounts, starting in chapter 4, the law that God gave to Israel through him. And he pleads with Israel to remain faithful to it. So he says in verse 5, 
See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as Yahweh my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. You shall keep them and do them for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this nation, this great nation, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is Yahweh our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am saying before you today? You see, the law of God and Israel's obedience to it was to be her witness to the nations around her. All those nations with all their wisdom, Israel's was to stand out. And the nations would see that wisdom, the profit, the benefit of living Coram Deo, Yahweh, specifically. Now turn to Deuteronomy 17. This is further instruction from God through Moses, again, for the nation, once they are in the promised land. It says in verse 14, when you enter the land which Yahweh your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom Yahweh your God chooses. Let's skip down to verse 18. Now it will be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of his law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God to carefully observe all the words of this law and these statutes. That was God's expectation for Israel's monarchy. He was going to have a personal copy of God's word that he always kept with him. That he foremost among all his brethren would undertake to gain wisdom from the law, to know it, to understand it, to receive it, it's discipline for righteousness and justice and equity, which he needed as king to give prudence to others and to the youth in his house. Altogether, this means learning to fear Yahweh, and that's exactly what we read in Proverbs 1, 2 through 4. This, by the way, is one of the means that God ordained for the preservation of his word again. And, and I just want to encourage you with that again. God did preserve his word and he commanded it to be copied with precision. The king is supposed to make this personal copy in the presence of the political priests, it says. In other words, the priests were the custodians of scripture and the king was the sponsor or the executive of making copies of scripture. God thought of everything and I want you to be encouraged by that. When it came to his word, God thought of everything, okay? Incidentally, David, Solomon, and Hezekiah may have been some of the very few kings who actually obeyed this instruction to make their own copy. Again, God also knew that, that that would be the case, but he still used these men very greatly, their reigns, to accomplish his purposes with his word. Solomon recalls that David and Bathsheba taught him as a youth, Proverbs 4. Verses 3 to 5 says, When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son before my mother, Bathsheba, then he instructed me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast to my words and keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. And again, when David came to die in 1 Kings chapter 2, he charges Solomon, Keep this word. Solomon's response to that charge is in 
1 Kings 3. I'll ask you to flip to 1 Kings 4, please. 1 Kings chapter 4. There, David is now dead. Solomon is king. And the Lord comes to Solomon in a dream in chapter 3 and invites him to ask anything that he wishes from God. Solomon doesn't ask for riches or honor or long life or victory over his enemies, but for wisdom to lead God's people. And God was pleased, granted to him the wisdom that he asked for, and granted him riches and honor and long life and victory. And then toward the end of chapter 4, there's this inventory of everything that God gave him, starting in verse 24, it says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of understanding in his heart, like the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, Ezraite, uh, Heman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahol, and the renown of his name was in all the surrounding nations. See, the reality of other wisdoms in the ancient Near East is not a threat. It's not a threat to the unique character of the book of Proverbs. It is rather a comparison that the Bible actually makes. The wisdom of Proverbs far exceeds the wisdom of those other nations. And Solomon's wisdom was recognized by them to be superior, more than Egypt, with whom Solomon had a very close relationship, more than Edom and Arabia and Mesopotamia and even contemporaries in Israel. Verse 32. He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and if you're curious, that does not add up all the Proverbs in, in the book of Proverbs. book of Proverbs represents about 15% of that total. He wrote a lot. And his songs, it says, were 1,005. And he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. This is a real king in a real context. Okay? Now, right now I'm reading to my boys, King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, the version by Sir Lancelot Green. I don't know who that is, but just so you know. <laughs> and the many legends from medieval times, they're all like everybody's version of, of King Arthur. It's like coalescing all of these different legends from medieval times about King Arthur and his men. And though there may have been at one time a real Arthur from whom those legends began that is very obscure, very doubtful. Yet, the fact of the embellishment of these legends is patently obvious. I mean, nobody's trying to be very truthful about it. I mean, it's magic everywhere and, and all sorts of absurd things. I mean, it's adventurous, right? It desires to present Arthur as this virtuous, noble, incorruptible person from his youth, from his tender youth, like 11, 12 years old. I can't remember how old he's supposed to be when he pulls the sword out of the stone. You've seen the movie, right? The Bible is not like that. The Bible is not that about Solomon. I just, I would remind you, you can go to Jerusalem today. You can find ruins from his period, specifically from the royal quarter 
between the Temple Mount and the city of David. I've seen them with my eyes. I, I wanted to show you pictures tonight. I couldn't. You can see the evidence of Solomon's architecture that corroborates the cities of his reigns that the Bible talks about, Megiddo and Hatzor and Gezer. The Bible doesn't hide the truth about Solomon's corruptibility either, the way that Solomon ended. Not only do Solomon's sons go astray, Solomon himself goes astray. It's incredibly disappointing. Bruce Waltke writes, Solomon hangs himself on his own gibbet. Stop listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge, he says. Spiritual successes today are no guarantee of piety and ethics tomorrow. Disciples must attend to their spiritual lives constantly, end quote. And my friends, you need to realize that as well. You need to attend to your spiritual life constantly. Wisdom is a lifelong path, and it should be a lifelong path upward, right? Talk more about that. At this early stage, however, Solomon is doing well. He's teaching his sons. That's the context, facet number four. Facet number five is its structure, Proverbs structure. Now, there are seven sections of the book divided up for us. You've seen the title and the preamble. Turn with me through the rest of these. Flip back to, to Proverbs. I just want to show, show you them. You've seen chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. The poems of Solomon begin then in verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, my son, hear my son. And we get several poems in a row, my son, my son, my son. You know, the audience of this book as a young person, this book is written for you. Solomon is teaching princes in his court, but he's also putting wisdom in the mouths of parents all across Israel. And in God's wisdom, he's put wisdom in the mouth of parents in his church all through time. Now, this book is written for you, young people. I prayed for a long time that, that God would make me a man someday and not a boy, you know. I mean, this is the stage of life you're in. Young women, young men, to learn from this book, it's aimed at you in particular. That's, that's the second section, begins there in verse 8 of chapter 1. The poems of Solomon is what I would call that. Then you get to 10, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1, I mentioned. We have again a title, The Proverbs of Solomon. And from here on, we have a different format. Whereas we had longer poems in chapters 1 through 9, now we get these short, really sharp statements, axioms, you might call them, or adages. That runs through 22, verse 16. So I'd call this section the Proverbs of Solomon, volume 1. You get to 22, verse 16, if you look at that with me. Uh, verse 17 is what we're interested in. This section I would call the words of the wise. I mentioned that earlier. The verse says, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. 
Now, that might seem a little bit obscure to you, like why, why do we make a whole section just out of that verse? But, let's see, 24, 34... Nope, 23, I'm sorry, 24, verse 23, we have the same moniker, 24, verse 23. These also are sayings of the wise. So there's some group in mind that, that Solomon has, right, the sayings of the wise. And I think these were anonymous sayings that, that Solomon saw wisdom in, and in God's guidance, under God's granted wisdom to Solomon, he uses, Okay. Section number five of the book then starts in 25, verse 1. We've already read that. These are more Proverbs of Solomon. I would call this Proverbs of Solomon, volume 2. It was transcribed by Hezekiah's men. And then chapter 30. Flip to chapter 30. Verse 1. The words of Augur, the son of Yaqeh, the oracle the man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. By the way, two words here. We see them in chapter 31 as well. The oracle and the man declares. These are prophetic terms, okay? So if anyone ever questions whether we should put Proverbs in the same inspiration category as the prophets, let this, let this settle your mind on the issue. It's the same. This is why I suggested Augur was a prophet, okay? And then chapter 31, verse 1, the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. So that was section 6 and section 7 of the book, words of Augur and the words of Lemuel. Now, you're familiar with the Proverbs 31 woman, the wife of noble character, and I would suggest it's no mistake that that is the last section of the book as a conclusion, okay? And it sets women on a high plane, okay? Proverbs is concerned with women, not only men, not only sons, okay? Use the word sons there in a general sense, like young people, okay? And it has an immediate, a more immediate context, perhaps, in, in Solomon's court. But more generally, we're interested in growing up to be wise, of Proverbs gives this grand finale for women, but for all of us to learn from this example of wise women. That's facet number five, it's structure. Okay, facet number six, it's key themes. Facet number six, it's key themes. And I want you to see four. The first is obviously wisdom. Wisdom. Related over overlapping concepts of Wisdom, our knowledge, understanding, instruction, teaching, truth, discernment, discretion, and prudence. And it's opposite to folly, which is also stupidity and naivety in Proverbs. And Solomon leaves no room for doubt when he says in Proverbs 24, verse 9, the scheming of folly is sin. It's not a great category. Proverbs 20, verse 9, he says, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart? I am pure of my sin. He's calling each one of us to recognize the sinfulness of our own tendency to folly and the intentional folly that we endeavor in sometimes. 
It's sin. There's no question about it. On the other hand, the benefits of wisdom that Solomon puts before us are covenant blessings, which we talked about. That's why you see rewards for wisdom in this book like long life, blessing, and the land, right? It's not, Proverbs is not promising you that you're going to get a good deal next time you go to buy a house. This is covenant context here, and that's the promised land. But wisdom's benefits are also timeless and applying to you and me today. And the principle there is that we gain skill for living well, generally. That, that we gain favor with man, generally. That we gain peace and security and stability, generally. In a word, Proverbs says this is life. Proverbs 8.35, wisdom is personified there, and it cries out in the streets, for he who finds me, says wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from Yahweh. I mean, if what is I mean, what is my life if not obtaining favor from Yahweh? It's wisdom. Therefore we get we get these metaphors for wisdom in this book as well. Wisdom is a noble, eligible woman, not the seductress woman. Wisdom is more valuable than all treasures. Wisdom is a tree of life. Wisdom is an intimate friend. Wisdom is a master workman. Wisdom is a fountain. Wisdom is like honey to the taste. And other things in its category, knowledge and understanding and so on, are like a wreath about the head. They're like an ornament around the neck, which means the pendant hangs over your heart. An instruction or an inscription upon the heart and a path. Proverbs 4, verse 11. The writer says, I have instructed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright tracks. Which leads to a second main theme. That is that there are two paths or ways in life. There are two paths or ways in life. The English path or way appears 100 times in this book. The Hebrew verb to walk or to go appears 38 times. And this word for tracks that we saw in 4 verse 11, it's literally wagon tracks. Wagon tracks. Have you heard that before? It's, it's this well-worn path that over time as you lead your wagon, okay, as you walk your life over and over again along the same route, wheel ruts are carved into the dirt, aren't they? And so is wisdom that you would carve out by consistent, wise choices in your life a path that simply becomes normal to you. That's what this, this pattern, this illustration is. And, and that, that, that process in life, the wagon wheel tracks, it could be good or it could be bad. There is first in Proverbs the way of death, Okay, Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 2, 5, 7, 9, it says that that, that path leads downward to Sheol, which is to say the grave or destruction where, where the shades or the dead spirits live. It's also called the way of the wicked or of the fool, of the guilty, of darkness, of evil, and the crooked way. There is, secondly, 
the path of life. Path of life, Proverbs 10, 17. He is on the path of life who keeps discipline, but he, forsakes, he who forsakes reproof makes himself wander about aimlessly. Proverbs 15, 24. The path of life leads upward for the one who has insight that he may turn away from Sheol below. Now, wisdom is concerned in Proverbs with destination. Not only the process of getting there. Wisdom is concerned with destination. If we had time, I'd, I'd love to show you that. But obviously, a path leads somewhere, right? Wisdom is a path. It's leading somewhere. This path of life is called the way of the righteous, of the upright, or of uprightness, of wisdom. It's called the straight way. It is called simply the way in Proverbs 23, 19, like the way par excellence, the way that you want. And the way of Yahweh in Proverbs 10, 29. And these two ways are, in fact, the same two paths as tested by Moses, Deuteronomy 30, attested by David in Psalms 1 and 16, and attested by Jesus Christ. And you're aware of that. Matthew 7, 13 to 14, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Two paths are a major theme in this book. A third major theme, I'll just give it to you for time's sake, is the fear of the Lord, we talked about. And a fourth major theme is relationships. Relationships, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to the messages that were taught on Proverbs a couple of years ago in Roots on relationships. I think the series is called Relationships Matter. Now, facet number seven are its approaches. Okay, How do you approach the book of Proverbs? I just want to mention, because I talked about the other ancient Near Eastern wisdom earlier, okay, that one of the things you should be aware about as you approach Proverbs is to be wise about similarities made with other ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature. You know, there's, there's bad guidance out there about how to read the Bible, sometimes from well-meaning people, oftentimes from ill-meaning people. But there's bad advice even that comes out of evangelicalism. Sometimes it will be suggested that Proverbs simply borrowed from other wisdom traditions, especially similar are Egyptian wisdom and Aramaic. I've mentioned other, other kinds as well. Tremper Longman is not somebody I always recommend, but he does say something helpful that I want to read to you says, even though we have good reason to think that the Israelite sages knew and learned from the wisdom of the broader ancient Near East, they would conclude that it was not so much that they were wise, those other traditions, as that they stumbled across the truth as they observed the rhythms of how the true God's world really works. And that's true, you know. There, is, there are tidbits of, of truth that you can find out in the world, Right? Of, of, of sinners with completely false, anti-God worldviews who stumble across the truth. 
And that's one of the ways that I started out this book, this message tonight with, is, is that if you want to glean from this book tips for life on your career or on, on, on finding nice people to marry, you know, that's all well and good. But it begins with square one, the fear. in those ancient Near Eastern traditions I just want to mention that are false and very sinful. For example, one Egyptian text says the following, woman is a pitfall, a pitfall, a hole, a ditch. Another says, woman is a sharp iron dagger that cuts a man's throat. Another says, do not open your heart to your wife. What you have said to her goes into the street. That's, <laughs> that's completely opposite to, to the way Proverbs speaks about women and speaks about marriage, right? Calls husbands to honor them. It shows fathers and mothers sharing and instructing their children. It looks at marriage as a blessing from the Lord, okay? I bring these things up because there's plenty of garbage on YouTube, okay? And this is what one of my concerns for, for the future of my studying and my ministry is that I want to steer as many away from garbage on these subjects as I can. With the, I really need to finish here. Thank you guys so much for listening. The last facet was just going to be its gospel path. Okay, there is a gospel path in Proverbs. Pastor Tom and Sheila's hymn, Our God has magnified his word, has a great line in it. It says, From every line on every page there is a road that leads to heaven's Lord and Calvary's Lamb, to him who died for me. I read to you earlier from Bruce Waltke about about this disappointment of Solomon's life. Well, I want to finish that quote for you. He says, moreover, the royal Proverbs, the royal Proverbs that spoke so much of a righteous king, an ideal king who exercises perfect justice, wasn't Solomon. It points to a king wiser than Solomon. Matthew 12, Luke 11. That king is Jesus Christ. Jesus perfectly modeled the way of wisdom for you and I. Moreover, Jesus perfectly lived the wisdom that is required of you, and he atoned for the sin and folly in your life. So I would end with John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father but by me. And anyone who, here who is not a Christian, who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ, Consider, where is the path of your life going? There's two paths. There's two paths that's very clear in Scripture. The only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. So I, I, I urge you to repent from your sins and put your faith in him. All right, let's finish there. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this book. There's too much to dissolve and digest out of it. I pray, Father, that you help each one of us to continually learn from it. Thank you for what you have given us tonight. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you give us soft hearts and open ears to receive it. It's in Jesus' name, amen.